1: Welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host for today. Today, I'll be speaking with Robert Gross about his new book, Public vs. Private, The Early History of School Choice in America. Dr. Gross is a history teacher and assistant academic dean at Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C. Hi, Robbie. Welcome.
0: Hi, Christine. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: I'm excited to talk to you as well. Um, Robbie and I have known each other for a while, and I uh, heard first about this book back when it was a dissertation, and I'm excited to talk to you about the book that it has become. So to get started, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in questions of education and the history of education and maybe school choice specifically?
0: Sure. So uh, I think like a lot of historians, uh, it's a product kind of of where I grew up and trying to answer questions that are personal. So I I grew up in Baltimore, uh, not not too far from Washington, D.C. And uh, Baltimore has a huge number of private schools, uh, which is a product of its Catholic heritage. So there are lots of Catholic schools and lots of uh, children attending Catholic schools. It also has all kinds of other uh, private schools, Jewish uh, day schools, uh, lots of independent schools, Quaker schools, uh, progressive schools, all boys schools, all girls schools. It just has huge numbers of, of private schools, um, as well as uh, public schools, obviously. And growing up in, there, in that world, I'd always um, kind of wondered about why the United States, uh, or Baltimore more specifically, or uh, big cities like Baltimore... Had uh, this kind of mixture of public and private schools. Where did that come from? Uh, so that, that I think that was just sort of like growing up and asking these kinds of questions. Uh, myself having you know friends that attended public school and other friends that attended private school. And um, then uh, I I studied history uh, in as an undergraduate uh, and then went to graduate school to study the history of education. And I became, I, I was in graduate school right around the time as uh, charter schools were exploding uh, all throughout American cities. And so I became very, very interested in a, this variation of the question of public and private, uh, which was this, this increasing discussion of school choice, uh, both in the context of charter schools uh, and then also in the context of school vouchers, so government programs to provide uh, publicly funded tuition payments for students to attend private school. And these voucher programs were on the rise as well uh, in the first decade of the of the 21st century. So I became really, really interested in looking at the history of these uh, topics, and I had no idea where that would take me, uh, but it kind of landed me at the beginning in the 19th century. So that is uh, how I came to... Study education um, and how I came to this particular topic.
1: Okay. And this exploring this topic took you to a much earlier history than we might um, imagine. So, and I think probably than you initially expected. Is that right?
0: That's right. Yeah. I, 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 that was a big question for me is where to begin the story. So I think for a lot of people, when they think of school choice, they think of it as a very, very Recent phenomenon, uh, and I did as well when I first approached the topic. So you, I could have started the story in the in the you know late eighties, early nineties when you first saw saw these charter schools uh, uh, rise. I could have started it earlier in the fifties, sixties, seventies, or eighties, uh, where you had the first kind of intellectual justifications for. Well, not, actually not the first, but a new version of intellectual justifications for school choice. Uh, this came out of the 50s in part on the on the more libertarian angle from people like Milton Friedman who were arguing for uh, privatization education and school vouchers as a way to um, increase competition in schools and hopefully improve outcomes you also had lots of uh support for vouchers on the left in the 60s kind of out of the new left as part of a critique of bureaucratization and the increasingly kind of ossified uh urban school systems in the country which were seen as not serving their students very well so i could have started my story around there uh or um uh, with Reagan in the eighties, who's the first sort of president to publicly come out in favor of vouchers. Uh, or again, earlier in the fifties, uh, where you had lots of Southern states adopting voucher programs as a response to Brown versus board of education. So I could have, and I'll maybe come back to that, but I, 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 because I sort of end my story with that. I could have, so I could have started any of those places, but, um, the more that I uh, looked into it, the more I realized that, in fact, all of that sort of post-World War II uh, history of school choice uh, was actually um, not the first iteration of school choice. And that there was an incredibly important story that really hadn't been told uh, about school choice. And that's, uh, that required me to go all the way back to the, to the origins of it uh, in the 19th century when you first had systematic alternatives to public school systems with the arrival of millions and millions of Catholic immigrants and the construction of uh, private uh, Catholic school systems in the United States. So that's where it ultimately uh, took me, but I did not imagine that, um, uh, that I would begin there or really focus on that, but I'm glad I did because I think because historians have sort of missed that story, Uh, And educational policy analysts don't know about that story. Uh, They're missing some really, really crucial lessons about uh, the history of school choice. And I think historians are missing some crucial uh, details uh, and insights into broader uh, questions surrounding what is the history of the regulatory state in the United States? What's the history of government support for private enterprise in the United States? in the United States. And what more generally is the relationship between public and private, which was a major, major question in the 19th century. But uh, interestingly enough, we don't, historians haven't focused as much on education and schools uh, and looking at that. They've instead focused on other economic areas. So that's where I uh, ended up and and it was a good thing.
1: Yeah. So let's start actually even just a little bit earlier than that, um, where you are explaining, or if you could explain for our listeners, a little bit of what the education landscape looks like before the moment when this new kind of competition is coming out. Or maybe to put that a different way, where and when do public schools develop in the United States?
0: Yeah, so I realized I needed to go all the way to the beginning and in part look at uh, what the educational landscape, as you put it, looked like before uh, even public schools emerged. So before public school systems, uh, as we think of them today, uh, emerged, meaning these are systems that are you know, largely st- you know, standardized at the, at the local or state level, they are free to, um, uh, to the public. Today we think of them as secular, though that was not the case uh, in the 19th century or really for most of the 20th century. Uh, But this kind of tax-dependent, free, uh, uh, state-run, centralized system, these emerged really in the 1840s and 1850s. Before then, uh, education was largely private and market-driven, at at least as we would think of it today. Meaning, uh, if you went to a school in the 18th century uh, if it was, you know, in the countryside where most Americans lived, or in the early 19th century, uh, you would see that uh, a range of different kinds of schools. Uh, most of them would be one-room schoolhouses, uh, and they would probably have a mixture of some public support. So the residents of the community may have taxed themselves to support the school for a certain amount of time, maybe a month or two. Uh, but most of the children attending the school would be paying some form of tuition to attend that school, especially if you wanted to keep them in the school for more than what the uh, public tax amount uh, could afford, which was which was usually very little because communities didn't want to tax themselves uh, excessively to pay for um, uh, for for schools. So it was market-driven in that sense, in that in the countryside, you still had what were called rate bills, rate payments, or tuition payments. In in cities, um, it was even more private in the sense that you had kind of um, entrepreneurial teachers who would set up their own schools, charge tuition, uh, and the middling classes would, uh, or even working class children, would attend those schools, uh, for a certain amount of time and learn writing or learn a particular, uh, uh, uh trade at those skill uh, at those, at those schools or other kinds of skills. Uh, or in cities you had like a place like New York city, especially where you had lots of, uh, poor children who couldn't afford to attend those private, uh, tuition dependent schools, you would have charity, what were called charity schools, which were institutions usually run by churches that provided education for the children of the poor for free, but they were privately run. So they were free, uh, but they were not provided by the government. Um, So it was a largely private world of education, uh, and it was uh, market-driven for almost everywhere. And that's essentially what it looked like. Schools were uh, obviously ex- exclusive, uh, in the sense that they uh, excluded uh, African American students uh, in the North as well as the South, uh, or they were segregated in the North. Uh, so it, it, it was not the, the um, kind of public, anywhere near the public realm of education and public school systems as we think of today. Um, and so that was what it looked like before public school systems uh, emerged and then when they emerge in the in the 1840s and 1850s it's a very very dramatic story because the people that are promoting public school systems like Horace Mann and Henry Barnard and others are promoting them with the explicit mission they say of decimating that private school landscape that had existed before them and they are incredibly eager to transfer students from the private schools that they attended to the public ones. Um, And there's a variety of reasons that they are uh, skeptical and distrustful of private schools, but they are hoping that uh, by the middle of the 19th century that the United States will essentially be able to convert entirely to a public system and all of the children will attend public schools.
1: Okay. And so they set about set about um setting up public education and it moves through the nation during this period of time. How how universal is that? How successful is that effort to set up those private schools? And then what comes to push back against it?
0: How successful is it to set up the public schools?
1: So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. S- sorry.
0: Sure. So I it's uh, it's it's fairly successful, uh, especially if you look at the local level. So where I went into, if you look at you know town records of um, of various school districts, you'll see uh, school superintendents in small towns, especially, talk with incredible glee about the numbers of students that are attending private schools are declining considerably. Uh, And they say things like, within a couple of years, we are hopeful that uh, all of the students will attend uh, public schools. And and I should just say, the reason that um, it was important to these reformers that public schools not only exist, public school systems not only exist, but actually, in some sense, come to monopolize education, was precisely because what they did not like about the private system was how it did not educate all of the children of the community in common, but rather tended to divide uh, children by religion. So for example, in cities, you may have uh, private schools that are operated by different kinds of churches. So Presbyterians, especially Protestant uh, denominations, Presbyterians would go to one school and Episcopalians would go to another school and there may be a Baptist school. Um, So they did not... Like how private schools uh, divided Americans uh, by religion or divided Americans by class uh, in the sense that private schools often did cater to the middling classes while these charity schools, especially in cities tended to and small towns tended to uh, be for the the children of the poor. So what so they in the nineteenth century, public schools were were often called common schools, with the idea being that They would be supported by the community, and they would be uh, a place where all of the children could be educated in common. And in doing so, they could serve to break down the divisions in American society that existed by uh, ethnic group uh, or by religion or by class. So the success to which that movement spread was fairly remarkable, and historians you know, it, it, the statistics on this is somewhat rough uh, because communities did not keep, uh, particular especially in rural areas, um, terrific statistics on this in the middle of the 19th century. But it's 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 likely that in, by the 18 late 1860s uh, 1870s, more than 50 percent of American children uh, were attending these new public schools, uh, and that those numbers increased uh, during the 18, 1870s as well. Uh, there were huge regional uh, um, uh, differences to this. So, in the South, public school systems didn't ex- virtually didn't exist at all before the Civil War. Uh, it was a requirement of their re entry into the Union after the Civil War that they uh, write in public school systems into their state constitutions. And during Reconstruction, uh, African Americans uh, within these state legislatures were basically were the ones that were building these public schools. But before then, you uh, did not really have public school uh, traditions in the South, and in the North, it was uh, it was somewhat spotty in rural areas. Uh, even into the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, you still had communities that did not want uh, to tax themselves to support you know a six, seven, eight month school year. Uh, so they still wanted to um, uh, rely on tuition payments. Uh, New York State was one of the last states to abolish those, uh, what were called, again, rate bills. Uh, so, and this was not until the, the 1860s, I believe. So it, it, it did take some time, uh, but by the 18, again, late 1860s, 1870s, uh, these reformers are incredibly confident that public school systems will uh, that are that they're already coming to dominate uh, the provision of education in the countryside and in the cities, and that they will continue to do so uh, until virtually again that they that they can become uh, that monopoly. And they talked about it in that way. Uh, so in the first chapter of the book, what I what I show is how education reformers, as well as a nineteenth-century political economists. Uh, thought about schools uh, in many ways similar to how they thought about other uh, what, what what were called the nineteenth century natural monopolies. So just like uh, railroads, for example, uh, should be monopolies in the sense that you would not want two railroad lines competing, going from you know the same place to the same place. That would be a wasted resource, uh, or you wouldn't want uh, multiple municipal water lines uh, going uh, within a city. Uh, to serve different households or electric lines or other sort you know postal service, other kinds of areas in the in the in American life and in the economy that Americans thought, you know, uh, an economist thought should be uh, should be monopolized. They likewise, many of them thought schools should work the same way. that you didn't need a private system, uh, and that a private system actually uh, which had you know a private system which which was characterized by competition, uh, could harm education and harm educational outcomes uh, for a variety of reasons. So uh, so again, the 1850s, 60s, 70s was this period of uh, incredible optimism for these reformers that public schools would come to dominate and, and monopolize education
1: and many of these discussions you, you know you point out and, and i think you were sort of pointing out right now as well that are taking place about regulation surrounding railroads and other kinds of utilities are taking place at the same time they these are folks who are talking about all of these things as being similar at the time correct
0: that's that's exactly right and they are being talked about by uh, major uh, by the most prominent economists uh, essentially in the 19th century uh, and by people who we associate kind of later on as uh, as progressives or progressive economists. So they are people who uh, especially are associated with the American Economics Association in the 19th century, which is an organization kind of dominated by, uh, by Protestants uh, and by econ- e- economists who are pushing back against the perception uh, that laissez-faire economics dominated uh, American kind of intellectual life in the first half of the 19th century, and they are arguing for a greater state role in a variety of different areas, uh, as you said, including in in utilities uh, and in how you regulate railroads. And they are applying that same kind of reasoning to looking at schools, and that kind of reasoning uh, is happening at the at the level of economists, but it's trickling down as well to how public school officials are talking and thinking about education. Um, so they look at private schools with uh, not not just as sort of oh these are these are our competitors to the public system," but they look at them often with. Uh, incredible disdain and as institutions that are inimical to the very mission that public schools f- both from a moral standpoint, again in terms of that key uh, or or sort of civic standpoint, uh, in terms of the the mission of public schools as being one to educate all the children in common, uh, but also from an economic standpoint, that it's it's fundamentally wasteful and inefficient. Uh, to have private schools competing with uh, public ones. So that, uh, which seems like an odd argument, uh, but that those were the kinds of arguments that were being used to justify, again, the spread of, of public schools. And then later on, uh, the attacks on private schools once they begin to proliferate.
1: So let's talk about the rise of those private schools. Um, you mentioned in your book that Uh, a lot of the history of education or history of of private parochial schools and whatnot uh, has been written talking about race and ethnicity and those sorts of things, Uh, in part because these private schools that are coming about at this period of time are largely Catholic, So they are wrapped up in uh, concerns about immigration and assimilation and all that kind of stuff. Um, Your book is not primarily about that, but nonetheless, could you kind of just briefly talk about why catholics want private schools why they're kind of not not getting in line with um this type of public school system that has been put in place and why that's a threat
0: sure so there are uh and and this is um this is how I you know generally uh, this is why I was so excited to to write you know, the dissertation to engage in this research and then to to write the book is because this is a story that um, I knew something about, but uh, that has incredible amounts of conflict in it. So, uh, at some point, I will will get to you know some of the arguments of the book uh, and what makes those arguments, I think, interesting. At least what made them interesting to me is that they um, kind of undermine some of the. Conflict narrative surrounding this, but there is huge amounts of conflict between uh, public and private schools during this time. Uh, this conflict culminates with huge attempts to abolish private schools. Uh, again, these attempts were largely aimed at Catholic schools, where most uh, of children that attended private school went to school. So, so it's it's a it's a great story full of conflict. Uh, the reason that these private schools, there had always been private schools in the United States. There, you know, and there continued to be private schools uh, even after uh, public schools arose to, you know, compete with them. Especially at the, um, uh, you know, for the children of the elite, there, uh, there were there were private schools. But what makes Catholic schools remarkable is that these were mass attended institutions. Uh, that is. By the late 19th century, you had in many, many cities, 20, 30, 40, uh, and in small towns, you could have 50% or more of the children of that town attending uh, private schools, uh, Catholic schools in particular. So it's not; these are not the elite institutions that educate a small minority of the populace, but rather mass-attended institutions. Why did Catholics attend them, uh, and why did they want to build why did they want to build them? There were uh, a huge variety of reasons that were both driven by kind of top-down uh, uh, commands made by the Catholic hi- hierarchy. Uh, but I think the more important you know uh, um, uh, aspect to it is that parents wanted them, and parents wanted Catholic schools in part because as you suggested, uh, they thought that public school systems were hostile to their vision of education. And they thought it was hostile in a couple of different ways. Uh, One, because they often associated, rightly, public schools with Protestant uh, educational uh, kind of curriculum and Protestant morality. Uh, And not only Protestant morality, but explicit Protestant teachings. So for example, public schools in the 19th century, into the 20th century, uh, often began their school day with a reading of the Bible. Uh, And in public schools all throughout the country, for various historical reasons having to do with who were the people that founded these schools, where they were founded, and who the teachers were, uh, that Bible reading was often from from the King James Bible, the Protestant Bible. And which rubbed Catholics the wrong way. And there were huge conflicts uh, in cities where, uh, around this practice of uh, reading from uh, the King James Bible. So often Catholics just said, uh, rather than try to argue it out with the public schools over whether or not what version of the Bible to read, uh, we'll just simply set up our own uh, alternative uh, schools where we can uh, emphasize Catholic teaching and Catholic biblical interpretation. Uh, but the other reason you often heard from Catholics is, uh, uh, not that public schools were too Protestant, but often that they were simply too secular in general. So, uh, as part of a kind of compromise to, or, or, or too ecumenical, I guess I should say, as part of a compromise to get all Protestant denominations and Catholics to attend public schools, Uh, Public schools often made a deal where they would sort of talk about religion, but in a general watered-down way. Uh, And for many Catholic parents, they wanted a more explicit religious education for their children, uh, which they thought uh, only a Catholic school uh, could provide. So for that reason as well, they were kind of repelled from from public schools. And then you have a whole host of other reasons that many, many Catholic parents uh, preferred private education, uh, working class Catholic parents. Some of this had to do, especially if they were uh, immigrants uh, with uh, the parochial school's ability to maintain the ethnic uh, uh, ties to wherever they came from. So whether that was uh, language instruction, which was incredibly important to many immigrants, that their children attend school in the language of uh, in the language of the home, or they get instruction in the language of the home. Uh, so whether that's Polish or, uh, whether that's German, uh, or other, you know, Czech or wherever, wherever else. Uh, so that was incredibly important, uh, to many Catholic parents. Uh, and then they simply, you know, also what's important with a private school is that it has to be affordable. And the reason that these were mass attended institutions was that, uh, Catholic schools could, um, operate, uh, schools attached to uh, their churches that could essentially charge no tuition or very, very low tuition uh, because they were subsidized by the church uh, and because they employed nuns uh, to be the teachers and uh, nuns did not require the the kinds of salaries, obviously, that a lay teacher required. So those were some of the, the, the drivers. As I said, there was also a very, very prominent um, decrees made by the Catholic hierarchy that they that that parents uh, should attend Catholic schools uh, that they needed to get explicit permission from the bishop uh, if they were going to send their child to a, a public school. so there was uh, sort of those kinds of pressures as well uh, but it really was uh, your average kind of working class Catholic parent uh, who were pushing for these institutions to uh, exist and to send their their children there.
1: So the interesting thing you find is that despite that aspect of conflict that uh, the drivers or the promoters of parochial schools become... Uh, or work with the advocates of public schools and with the governments to create a kind of accommodation and to kind of figure out um, how to make the system work in a more of a marketplace of education, as I believe um, you call it. And they really regulation is one way that they do that. So could you talk a little bit about that accommodation and how they come to find or how both sides come to find benefits to having Marketplace, despite uh, the goals of the public school promoters originally.
0: Sure. So, th- this is what was really a, uh, the, the great surprise of, of, of the research I did. Uh, but, you know, let, let me just go back for one second. So, when these private schools, when these Catholic, you know, largely Catholic private schools began to proliferate, and again, in huge numbers, really in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, and then continuing. Uh, all throughout the early twentieth century, uh, but when they first begin to proliferate, the, the response from public officials is, as you would expect, uh, which is these institutions are competing with our public schools. We had hoped with uh, with you know uh, with great certainty that public schools would come to monopolize education, and so for these Catholics to open up Catholic schools. Uh, again, uh, just is completely against the purpose of public education, let alone that many public officials themselves were anti-Catholic and believed that Catholic schools, uh, you know, not only competed with public schools, but competed with the the vision of America that, that Catholic schools were teaching loyalty to the Pope rather than loyalty uh, to the United States government and all kinds of other sort of anti-Catholic um, uh, uh symbols and you had prominent cartoons and prominent politicians that tried to shut down Catholic schools. Uh, and it became a huge battle in the 1870s, 1880s That, that was fought at, at the national level, um, including attempts to get a constitutional amendment passed to prevent any public funding from going to private schools all the way to the state level, where you had attempts uh, within state legislatures and by governors, to try to make it very, very difficult for parents to attend private schools uh, and as well as to shut down uh, these private schools that taught in foreign languages, uh, so you passed a law that said uh, your school has to teach uh, uh, in English, for example. these were uh, and then you had at the local level attempts to shut down these these newly created Catholic schools by Doing things like removing their property tax exemption, which was incredibly important to, and continues to be incredibly important to private schools and their ability to exist. Uh, especially if you need to keep tuition low and you want the children of the working class to be able to attend your institution, you rely on those kinds of uh, small kind of fiscal subsidies to be able to operate. So. The, so public officials do uh, try to, at first, shut these schools down, um, and especially at the state and the national level. Uh, and then, again, I want to just come back to the end of the story for a second, because this, I think this makes the, 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 the question that I was trying to answer more apparent. Uh, but, but in the 1920s, you have an attempt by the Ku Klux Klan uh, all throughout northern states to shut down private schools, and they succeed in the state of Oregon in passing a law that compels the children of the state of Oregon to attend public schools so there was all this conflict, and so the the, the main question that I had was, well, given all this conflict, how was it that these Catholic schools were able to not only persist uh and and survive but to but to actually thrive and continue to grow and one part of the story obviously is the determination of the of of catholic uh of the catholic church of catholic parents of catholic parishes to uh fight back against these attempts to close them but when i went into the archives of public schools systems at the local level uh And when I went to the archives of uh, the Catholic school systems uh, within certain cities, what I found was that there kind of outside of the view of the public, there were all these attempts, uh, as you mentioned, to create an accommodation, to create a situation where you did have uh, public schools that could exist in a kind of marketplace alongside private schools, and the reason that that accommodation uh, came about was uh, for a variety of incentives that the that public officials had to uh, not only again allow these Catholic schools to exist and private schools to exist uh, but actually to actively promote them so so let me just talk about uh, uh, a few of those uh, and these dynamics are really, really interesting because I think they actually tell us a lot about the American regulatory state more generally uh, and the role that, uh, I think it mirrors in some sense, the role that uh, American state governments have played more generally uh, in regulating the private sector. So what uh, public officials see is that these Catholic schools educate huge numbers of children I mean, huge numbers. If you're educating 40% of the children of a, of a city like Pittsburgh, right, that's tens of thousands of students. And those tens of thousands of students are, in essence, being educated for tax-free. I mean, they are, they are, their education is coming out of private funds. And not only that, but their parents are paying their own property taxes to the city to educate the children in the public schools. So Catholics consistently complained about this as a form of, they called it double taxation. We have to pay our tuition, uh, even if it's a very, very small amount or non-existent, but we have to pay whatever we do pay to the church uh, for our child to attend the Catholic school. And we have to pay the state uh, to, uh, because we're compelled to do so, um, to pay for other children's uh, uh, education. So uh, public school officials knew that they could not harass Catholic schools too much. And this is public officials at the local level uh, knew that they could not uh, harass uh, these Catholic schools too much because if they did, they would be responsible all of a sudden for having to educate uh, all these tens of thousands of children and uh, the fiscal burdens of that on a city would be tremendous, and there are these are explicit conversations that are often happening uh, at, at, at city council uh, hearings surrounding the importance of uh, these private schools in fulfilling a kind of public mission of educating mass numbers of children, uh, but without overburdening uh, the tax base of a city. Uh, so that's one reason that public officials created a, or at least agreed to some accommodation with catholic schools. The uh the other main reason so was sort of political. So if the first reason is economic, uh the second reason is political that public officials really feared uh the backlash uh that any kind of oppressive law would bring from the from the catholic uh, electorate of the city and there were lots of uh, examples of this. So in in, in Wisconsin and in Illinois, in the late 1880s, the, the legislature passed very restrictive laws on parents' ability to uh, send their children to private schools uh, or to teach or to have private schools that taught, again, in the, in the native language of the, of the ethnic group, which was usually German. And the result of these laws was that the entire legislature was flipped Uh, within a year. And all of the uh, elected officials uh, who passed these laws were voted out of office. And the same thing happened in uh, many, many communities uh, outside of Massachusetts. Whenever you had uh, laws passed to, again, restrict attendance in private schools or uh, laws passed uh, that affected Excessively, the curriculum of a, of a private school, so public officials were also incredibly wary of um, the political backlash. So instead, so instead, uh, this accommodation that was created was part of a kind of compromise that was worked out between at the local level in city after city after city between Catholic school officials and public school officials, and what the Catholic schools ultimately said. Was please allow us to exist, and there's lots of reasons that you should do that that are in your own interest. And in return, we will open ourselves up to lots and lots of public regulation. So, um, we want to be able to keep our property tax exemptions, but in order to keep those property tax exemptions, we agree that there should be some reasonable uh, form of inspection of our schools so that you can see that they fulfill a public purpose. Uh, We also want to make sure that our curriculum is aligned with certain public standards because we want to make sure that uh, the public trusts our schools, that they send their children to our schools, and that those children can then go on to attend public high schools. Uh, or public colleges, and no one will question the curriculum of our schools. So this was the interesting accommodation that was worked out, where you had, uh, in return for um, allowing these private schools to exist, uh, the private schools agreed to huge amounts of public regulation. And this becomes crucial then, Later on, when there are these attempts to abolish Catholic schools in the, in the, in the early 1920s and late 19-teens, uh, the courts look at these public regulations very, very, very carefully as a justification for keeping them around, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so since you brought up the courts, um, can you talk for just a second about how And I want to kind of move towards talking about some of those big questions um, about the regulatory state that you have mentioned along the way and that are a key part of your argument. Um, So could you talk for just a second about how those legal battles, not just how they played out, but even more sort of how they are setting up and framing other types of law and regulation within the United States, how they have these kind of bigger impact.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. So it's it's a great question, and it was one of those it was one of those things that was sort of s- that I that was staring right at me, and I and in some sense I knew about before I approached this topic, but I um, it, it felt like uh, in researching the book it was helping me answer these big questions about uh, just how central uh, and this fact that that education, especially private schools, have been central to how uh, courts and and especially the Supreme Court has looked at, um, uh, again, the relationship between the state and private enterprise more broadly. And you can just look at that by looking at some of the the major cases uh, that have come out of the Supreme Court in American history that have had major ramifications for how uh, the extent to which government is able to regulate uh, private enterprise. Uh, they, they have many of those cases have been about private schools. The most uh, notable of which was the Dartmouth College decision, uh, which is from the early 19th century. But again, it's about a, it's about a private school, um, and it's something I talk about in the book because it ends up setting a, a really really important precedent for how uh, the state is able to not only. Uh, again, kind of approach and regulate the private sector in education, but approach and regulate the private sector more generally. Um, and whether it's again the Dartmouth College decision or other cases uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century, culminating with the, the case that I have an entire chapter about called Pierce versus Society of Sisters, which is the case that where the Supreme Court looks at the constitutionality. Of this Oregon law that abolishes uh, that virtually abolishes private education by compelling students to attend uh, the public school. What I noticed was in each of these in each of these cases, again, there's a huge um, consequence not only for uh, for private schools and their ability to exist, uh, but also more generally, it's setting really, really important precedent for the 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 kind of scope. Of the American regulatory state more broadly. And what the Supreme Court ends up saying in, in virtually all these cases is that the state has to allow uh, these private schools to exist, uh, but that they have huge powers to regulate them. Uh, and that uh, so there's a, there's a, uh, uh, another case, again, a higher education case, uh, Berea college versus Kentucky an early 20th century case, uh, which is about a private school in Kentucky that wants to uh, be integrated, that wants to allow African American, uh, students to attend alongside white students. And the state of Kentucky says, you can't do that. And, uh, uh, and Berea college. You know, sues, and the Supreme Court ultim- ultimately says that the state has the power uh, to regulate your institution such that it can compel you not to allow, even though it's a private school, not to allow you to um, uh, uh, to enroll uh, an integrated student body. Uh, and then, in the Oregon case, in the Pierce versus Society of Sisters case. Uh, which is a incredibly important case. I mean, and is cited, uh, and taught in constitutional law classes to this day. And, uh, and I think is really, really misunderstood. Uh, it's a case that is often associated with a libertarian impulse of the right of parents to, um, uh, educate their children and send them to whatever school they want. Uh, and it's about and it's sort of thought about in this realm of kind of great of, of privacy, ultimately, and in the line of cases that uh, ultimately actually end up uh, being precedent for uh, for Griswold and for Roe versus Wade. Uh, but it's also seen as part of that Lochner era jurisprudence around uh, giving you know private enterprise and families all of this autonomy. But it's not at all what the case actually says. What the case says is the reason that the state of Oregon cannot abolish private schools is precisely because the state of Oregon, just like every state, regulates the heck out of these private schools. So because they've come up with all of these reasonable ways of ensuring the quality of the private school and ensuring that it complies with a public purpose, it is unreasonable to abolish them, uh, just as it would be to, for the state to pass uh, a law abolishing any other form of private enterprise, uh, where it already has reasonable regulations that ensure its quality, which are working. So, um, so in that sense, the, the story about uh, private schools and the regulation of private schools through American history have, I think, both reflected as well as really uh, uh, impacted the, uh, the scope of the American regulatory state more generally, which often does um, uh, defer to private enterprise to accomplish uh, public aims and which uses private enterprise oftentimes, uh, both in the 19th and the 20th century, to to kind of govern through, you know, these public agencies or public bodies are governing through private enterprise, using uh, these private agents to accomplish uh, uh, public ends, whether that's for uh, an economic pers- purpose, again, of, of, of cutting costs, uh, or if there's some argument about efficiency. But you see that happening with, private education. And it's often these cases, again, that kind of lead to that sort of accommodation.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So since you started talking about the the big picture here, what, what does this tell us if we're thinking about um, some of these questions today? How, or if you were to... Have one or two takeaways, or one or two things that you wanted to tell policymakers or the general public or whatnot um, about the importance of the story for thinking about some of these debates that are taking place in the public sphere now about vouchers and all that kind of stuff. What what would those takeaways be?
0: Yeah, I think I think there are a couple uh, uh, really 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 uh, crucial ones. The the first, uh, and I am incredibly interested in these debates about. Uh, school choice today, and again, I, I think just as we lose, we we've lost the historical um, story surrounding the origins of school choice and the importance of regulation, not only in, um, uh, in, in how that story played out, but really regulation, as I just kind of discussed, was was the very basis for the creation of. Uh, Private alternatives to public schools. If you didn't have regulation in the 19th century and the early 20th century, if you didn't have huge amounts of regulation, and uh, my book details all of the ways that that regulation kind of played out and what it looked like, if you didn't have that, then it's quite likely the Supreme Court would have said, you know what, Oregon, uh, and therefore the you know several dozen other states that were in the process of attempting to abolish private schools, um, uh, you can. Uh, actually abolish these things uh, because the state is not regulating them. Uh, or you know what? Uh, local jurisdiction, you do have the right to remove the property tax exemption because the state uh, is not regulating you and therefore you have no claim to be a public uh, to be you know um, uh, to be acting in a public purpose. So that story of regulation, uh, which is lost, I think in the in the history of education and education and school choice, that story is also getting lost today when we talk about school choice. So often the debate about let's say, vouch- you know, vouchers or charter schools, the debate is often do you support them or don't you? You know, do you are you in favor of charter schools uh or aren't you? You know, sh- should the legislature uh create charter schools in in this city uh or are charter schools bad and they shouldn't? And I think it's perfectly legitimate to have that kind of conversation, but a really, really important conversation that is often not happening is charter schools exist in many places to this day. How should they be regulated? What kinds of standards should they be held to? what um, uh and this and you see this, you know what kind of curriculum should they be uh, should they have to teach? What should the lottery have to look like? Uh, for parents who are trying to get into a charter school, should they weigh certain factors and not others? Um, and with voucher programs, the same kinds of questions: what um, What should a private school that accepts a public that accepts public tax dollars? Uh, what should that private school? What kinds of standards uh, should they be held to? So those are those are not boring questions. Those are, I think, actually the most important, lively questions. In um, some of them, at least, in American and ed- education policy today, uh, and they're often ignored. And I think the history that um, uh, that I tell in this book uh, suggests that this question of regulation is at the center of a healthy, thriving education marketplace. It seems like we've agreed as a society—you uh, know, it's it's a bipartisan agreement right now. One of the few things you know, there's bipartisan agreement among along the existence of charter schools. Uh, so the question really is, now that we have them, uh, what should they look like? How should they be regulated? And some cities in this, and states in this country regulate charter schools very, very well. Uh, and others do not regulate them very, very well. And, they, um, and, and that's, that's a really, really important lesson. And, I, the, and the, the history I tell suggests that it's, it's crucial. So that, that's one uh, I think takeaway, uh, and then the other takeaway, which which is connected, uh, is that, um, uh, and I think this is part of maybe a broader you know movement in historiography, uh, and one of the things that I think historians have done a really terrific job uh, of of explaining that 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 just in general politics have been central to how markets. Uh, have functioned in the United States. And I think that's true of education markets. So we can think that, you know, in the future, I'm sure, as I tell in this book, education has, uh, will, will, will look different. Uh, schooling will look very different probably 40 years from now, maybe even 20 years from now, just as it looked different from the early 19th century uh, to the late ni- late 19th century and from the late 19th century to the to today, right? So schools change a lot. And technology has a lot to do with that, um, and, uh, and markets have a lot to do with that, and demand has a lot to do with that. But ultimately, I think what my story suggests is that um, Americans, though they uh, may prefer their schools to look different at different times, nonetheless generally agree that schools should be accountable to the public. And they've always felt that way about private schools, that they should be regulated, um, and that they, there should be standards uh, uh, surrounding them, whether it's uh, who's teaching in them, what they're teaching, what their building should look like, um, whether they should fly an American flag, whether they should say the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, any you know what language they teach in any number of different uh, dimensions. And I think even though even you know in our in our own day to day, I just don't see a world where uh, the private sector will. Come to dominate education in a way that will um, uh, ignore school boards, ignore elected officials, ignore politics. Uh, politics has always been at the center of our debates about education, and, uh, and I think they continue they will continue to be. Okay. So,
1: despite the fact that you just told us some great takeaways, I have one last question for you um, on uh, about your book, and I'm curious about some of the the shifts from the period that you talk about in your book to now. In perhaps the word would be the political economy of uh, these debates and suggestions and things like that, and in particular. You know I was quite interested in the parts where you talk about the importance of having these you know big mass private schools in order to essentially make the economics of the public schools work uh, and so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about how kind of current debates how that the the fiscal debates or the fiscal, the very real fiscal questions, um, fit in. And you, you do talk a little bit in your book about a couple of proposals for voucher systems at various times and things like that. Um, but I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that, because as you say, in current debates, the, there are arguments about kind of, um, if, we, we, uh, private schools should be publicly supported as well. Or if I'm my kids going to a private school, the idea of vouchers, or at least in, in some versions is to have our tax dollars support, you know, our kids kind of thing. Um, but I was wondering if you might just talk a little bit about if that has changed, I don't know a ton about current education policy on that type of question, but I was curious what you think.
0: Yeah, I think, well, there's been some, really dramatic, you know, sea changes. Essentially, right, The my, my story is largely about the, the 19th century and, and early 20th century, sort of the creation of uh, and the origins of school choice and these systematic alternatives to private schools and the legal debates uh, and institutions that are set up to allow competition and education and public and private schools to coexist. So it's about how that kind of solidifies. And then Uh, and then I have an epilogue that kind of takes the story to the present and it's, um, and that's a very dramatic story, which includes the decline of Catholic schools. Uh, they, these have been declining in dramatic numbers and, um, there's been fiscal, uh, consequences for that, uh, for cities. Um, so, and there's a lot, there's a variety of reasons why these Catholic schools have declined. Uh, part of this has to do with, um, uh, just a decline of 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 nuns uh, who have been who are able to work in these schools, uh, who again have uh, tr- historically kept costs so low. Uh, part of it has to do with demographic patterns of Catholics moving to suburbs, and um, uh, and then some of it has to do with charter schools, uh, which have a, which in the '90s and early two thousands, uh, there's lots of evidence that they um, were taking students from that had historically been to to private schools. And so it's only within the last decade that today you have more children attending charter schools than you do attending Catholic schools uh, uh, or private schools. And that's that's new. That's for, So for the first time in American history, uh, Catholic schools are no longer the primary alternative or the most attended alternative to traditional public school systems. Today they're charter schools. Um, and i i think you're right uh the, I, this has had an um the the kind of f- fiscal ramifications of this and the financial ramifications of all these changes uh they're they're in some sense still being played out uh and uh but i also think when it comes to for example vouchers which something you mentioned uh, this is an area that regulation can play a really, really important role, and different states have different answers to this. So if you're going to have a voucher program, uh, to what extent should it be means tested? That is, uh, should we allow middle-class parents who maybe would afford to uh, be able to send their child to a private school anyway, uh, should we allow them to benefit from uh, a publicly funded voucher program uh, and my understanding is that most states say no uh, and this is certainly true in the in the city I live in in the District of Columbia, which has a voucher program that was established by the by congress by the federal government uh, uh it's it's not a program for for middle for the for the middle class uh, but in other states um it it kind of is, and many people have critiqued that on you know fiscal grounds how can we afford this? This is robbing the taxpayers um, uh, of uh, you know of money that they could be using to to send their to 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 pay for public schools uh, or to send more uh, to children or, you know or to or to give the voucher to a child that um, really whose parents really couldn't afford for them to attend uh, this private school. So, um, uh, you know, I think. Uh, I, I think the fiscal ramifications of this changing world of public and private is, is still playing out. The advocates of public education have always said that uh, if you have more children attending the public schools, including charter schools, then that will lead to a greater commitment to public education more generally. And this is just, again, getting back to your fiscal question. And voters in these cities will be more willing to vote for you know, bond referenda to increase, uh, public school, uh, uh, you know, to increase property taxes or amounts going to the public schools. So, um, but I, but I think, um, I think this question of, as you put it, the political economy of education is deeply tied into, and, and school finance is deeply tied to, uh, the existence of, of this mixture that we have of, of public and private schools.
1: Well, thank you so much. You've given us a lot to think about, and I hope people will go read the book and um, learn a little bit more about the history of these really important uh, questions that still are with us.
0: Thank you very much, Christine. I, I, I so enjoy talking to you.
1: Great. And thank you all for listening to the New Books in History channel. It's part of the New Books Network.